Welcome to LaGrave Avenue CRC's Sermon Podcast. We continue our Lenten sermon series, Christ Alone, with Christ's interactions with the religious leaders. In this particular passage, Christ reveals himself as the Messiah. What this truly reveals is the type of religious leader Christ is and we should model as well. You're listening to Jesus and the Religious Leaders by Reverend Peter Yonker. Our Bible reading this morning is from the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 14, I'll read verses 35 through 65. And if you've been here or watched online over the last few weeks, you'll know that through the whole of Lent, we're going to be in the Gospel of Mark. We're going to be following Jesus to the cross. And we'll be noticing that one of the things that Jesus does along the way, that Mark does and shows us with Jesus, is that he has Jesus come into contact with different institutions, different powers. And in every case, we learn something about these institutions and we learn something about the way Jesus relates to them. So institutions like the family, like government, like religious leaders. Today, we're going to see Jesus interacting with the religious leaders, which he did very, very often. And particularly, we're going to see a crucial interaction, which is his trial right before his crucifixion. So as we come in, Jesus is standing before the leaders of the leaders. The Sanhedrin are a group of 70, 71 people who are like the chiefs of the chiefs. There's Sadducees in the Sanhedrin, there's Pharisees in the Sanhedrin, priests, teachers of the law, all the leaders, and they're led in turn by the high priest. And they function kind of like a Supreme Court of Judaism. There's any religious matter to adjudicate, the Sanhedrin takes care of it. And on this day, there is one matter to adjudicate. It's a special session, and the matter before them is Jesus Christ. Let's listen, starting at verse 53. They, the soldiers, took Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the teachers of the law came together. Peter followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest, and there he sat with the guards and warmed himself by the fire. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death, but they did not find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. Then some stood up and gave this false testimony against him. We heard him say, I'll destroy this temple made with human hands, and in three days we'll build another not made with human hands. Yet even their testimony did not agree. Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent, gave no answer. Again the high priest asked him, Are you the Messiah? the Son of the Blessed One. I am, said Jesus. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses, he asked. You've heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They all condemned him as worthy of death. Then some began to spit at him. They blindfolded him, struck him with their fists, and they said, prophesy, 
And the guards took him and beat him. This is the word of the Lord. In the Gospels in general, and in the Gospel of Mark in particular, there is no group of people, there is no institution that fails Jesus more completely than people like me. There is no institution, no group of people that fails Jesus more completely than people like me and people like Bob, the religious leaders. It's throughout the gospel, right? We all know this. And it starts right from the beginning. Jesus comes in contact with the religious leaders and they get in his way at every step of his journey towards the cross. It starts, if you read the Gospel of Mark, it starts right at the beginning in chapter 2 already. If you go to chapter 2, and you can do that later this week, there are four stories in chapter 2 of Mark. Every single one of those four stories involves Jesus coming into conflict with religious leaders. They question his authority. They question his credentials. He responds to them with, with he, you know, Jesus gives as good as he gets. He, he responds to them with, with pointed parables, like the parable of the tenants that kind of skewers them. He calls them out. They clash and clash and clash. I went through the Gospels and I counted. In just Mark, there are at least 18 separate incidents where they come into conflict with each other. And by the time we get to our story, the conflict is so bad that three times the religious leaders have come together and they've said to each other, you know, we got to do something. This Jesus, he has got to go. And they plot for his death. And now, in our passage, they finally got him where they want him. They got him on trial, although it's clear that it's not a fair trial. If you look at verse 55, it's clear they already know what they want the verdict to be, and now they're just looking for evidence. And so, as Mark shows us this conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders, he shows us a terrible irony. These are the guys who are supposed to know God, right? These are the guys who spend their whole life studying scriptures, studying who God is. They're the ones who are supposed to know the character of God. And yet when Jesus stands before them, God in the flesh, they have no idea who he is. How did they miss so badly? Now it's tempting for me as a religious leader to say to myself, oh, well, that's because they were corrupt and lazy. They obviously weren't working hard. They weren't reading scripture carefully. That's why they missed it. If it were me, I would have seen it. But I know that's not true. These are the Sanhedrin. You don't get to the Sanhedrin by being lazy. These are the best of the best in those terms, right? I'm sure they got up early every morning. I'm sure they said their prayers. I know they tithed. I'm sure that they worked hard on all their sermons and sat in their office until late at night. I know that their lives was stuff about God from morning to evening every single day. And yet, when the living God stood in front of them, they did not recognize him. Worse than that, when the living God stood in front of them, they wanted to kill him. And for good measure, they spit on him and hit him. How could they fail so completely? There is no institution that fails Jesus more completely than people like me. How do we look at this failure? 
Now, we could blame it on the institutional church, and there's people who would do that, right? That's organized religion for you. That's institutionalized religion. That's what happens. There's a lot of people these days who love to rip on institutional religion. But I don't think that's the problem here. If you read the Bible, it's pretty clear that God wants the church to be an institution. It's pretty clear that God prefers organized religion to disorganized religion, and he likes to have leaders over his church. In the Old Testament... He appoints priests and Levites. There's ceremonies, there's festivals, and, and, and the priests and Levites are leaders of those things. In the New Testament, the leadership structure changes, but there's still leaders. Deacons, elders, it's very clear that in the Acts of the Apostles that the, the apostles are, are leaders in Jerusalem. They have authority. They get to say what's going on. So God wants a church to be institutional, and he appoints leaders. The institution is not the problem here. What then is the problem? I went back to the Gospel of Mark, and I, I looked at every single one of the 18 times where Jesus and the leaders came together. And I noticed there is a kind of a common theme. It seems like Jesus and the leaders start fighting when Jesus starts to threaten the teachers by taking away their crowds. It has something to do with the relationship between the teachers of the law and the crowds. You see that from the very beginning. I said the conflict with Jesus and the leaders starts in chapter 2. The very first conflict is the healing of the paralytic. Do you remember how that went? The friends had to take the paralytic to Jesus, but they couldn't get to him because there was such a big crowd, they had to cut a hole in the roof and let him down. He was surrounded. There were all sorts of people around Jesus, and that was the first time that the Pharisees get testy. That was also the time when people started saying things like, wow, Jesus, what a great teacher. He teaches like one with authority, not like those teachers of the law. He's a way better preacher than they are. In chapter 3, it's when the crowds come around Jesus that they accuse him of being possessed by a demon. And if you read the three times in Mark where the Pharisees get together and plot to kill Jesus, and every single time they do it and they say, but we got to be careful of the crowds. we got to make sure that we don't make the crowds angry. It's something about the relationship of religious leaders with the crowds that drives this problem. Because you see, when you're a religious leader, you get a lot of attention. You stand up in front of a group of people, and you can talk for 20 minutes, sometimes more. And people sit there politely and listen to you. It's amazing. If you're in a committee meeting, and you speak up and give your opinion, your word has weight. People listen. If you're in the narthex after church, all sorts of people come towards you like you're important. They all line up and want to talk to you and say things to you. All kinds of attention when you're a spiritual leader, and that spiritual attention can become addicting. It can make you feel like you are smarter and more important than you really are. I've talked to ministers who've retired, and one of the things they tell me, and maybe you've heard this too, is that it's a shock to the system when you retire, and all of a sudden you aren't the guy, and you go out into the narthex, and all of a sudden people aren't flocking towards you. What happened? I thought I was smart. I thought I was important. Leaders get addicted, can get addicted 
to the attention of crowds. And if anything, that temptation is worse now than it has ever been. We live in the age of celebrity pastors, and we live in an age where everything is measured by the size of your crowd. How many Twitter followers do you have? How many Instagram followers do you have? How many YouTube subscribers do you have? It causes problems. This fall, I listened to a podcast, and I think some of you have listened to it too. It's called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. An amazing podcast, well worth a listen, although it's really, really long. It's about the fall of Mars Hill Church, which is a church out in Seattle, Washington, led by a man, a minister named Mark Driscoll. And in the late 90s and early 2000s, that church was the hottest church in Christendom. And it was reformed. This guy was a reformed pastor who preached reformed sermons. And people flocked to that church. He did amazing work. Good things were happening at that church. He was terrific at reaching young men in particular. And that's so hard to reach young men. He was doing it. And everyone was singing the praises of Mark Driscoll. But as the crowds grew, and as he got more and more international attention, that attention seemed to, for him to justify everything he did. He became a law unto himself. And some of his elders started to push against his management style, and they tried to hold him accountable. And when they couldn't do it, they said, well, maybe you'd like another megachurch. Can we get another megachurch pastor to be an accountability partner with you? And Driscoll said... Well, he can't be my accountability partner. His church is smaller than mine. When some of his fellow pastors who were on staff started to leave, he made them sign NDAs, non-disclosure agreements, and told them they, the agreement said they could not practice ministry within 100 miles of Seattle, lest they take some of the crowd. Brings to mind what Jesus said. Watch out for these teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes, be greeted with respect at the marketplaces or admire, and have the most important seat in the synagogue. <laughs> Jesus shows us a different path. Mark Driscoll didn't wear flowing robes. He favored leather jackets and jeans. But Jesus shows us a different path. In this story, Jesus is doing something completely different than the kind of spiritual leadership that caters to the crowd. I never noticed this before, just this week for the first time. You probably know that um, one of the things Jesus always does in his ministry is that he keeps quiet who he really is, right? He suppresses the fact that he's the Messiah. He doesn't want other people to know about his power. So when he heals someone, he says to that person, don't tell anyone about this. Just go show yourself to the priest, but don't tell anyone about this. In chapter 1 of Mark, he casts out a demon. The demon comes out and says, I know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. And Jesus says, shush. And even when Peter confesses that Jesus is the Messiah, remember Jesus says, who do you think I am? Peter says, we think you're the Messiah. First thing Jesus says after that, don't tell anyone. Don't tell anyone. In Mark, they call that the messianic secret. It's, it's, it's Jesus doing the opposite of getting Twitter followers, right? He's suppressing this. 
He's suppressing this. His whole ministry long, he refuses to say that he's the Messiah. Do you know the first time he finally admits who he is? Our passage. In the Sanhedrin. The trial is not going well for the Sanhedrin. They are losing this trial, as you read it in Mark. In the Jewish system, you had to have two witnesses, at least two witnesses who would agree on the testimony. And so the way you would bring in witnesses, you bring them in one at a time and they testify. And unless their witness really agreed almost completely, it wouldn't count. So if there's small differences, the testimony didn't work. Well, you hear Mark saying it. They're bringing in witness after witness, but their testimony doesn't agree. They are losing this trial. And so the high priest throws a Hail Mary. He looks Jesus in the eye and says, Are you the Messiah? The Son of the Blessed One? And Jesus says, Yes. Not only does he say yes, he throws in more. He says, And I'm the Son of Man, and you'll see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven. He says, I am the Son of the Living God. I'm the Messiah, the Son of the Living God. He gives the case to the Sanhedrin. He gives himself into their hands. Of all the times he could have revealed who he was, this is the time he chooses? If Jesus had finished one of his miracles and said, I'm the Messiah, people would have flocked to him. If after the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus had said, hey everyone, by the way, I'm the Messiah, he would have had an army at his side. If after the triumphal entry, if Jesus had got off the donkey and said, here I am, Jerusalem, I've come to save you, I'm the Messiah, the place would have been turned upside down. He would have had the biggest megachurch in town. Instead, he chooses to reveal himself at a moment that will get him killed. Jesus, why did you do that? He does it because when he wants us to look at his glory and think about his glory, he wants us to look and think in the right place. He does it because when we think of his glory, he doesn't want us to think of miracles. He doesn't want us to think of crowds. He wants us to think of the cross. When we think about him being the Messiah, he doesn't want us to think of all that glitzy stuff. He wants us to think of the sacrifice, the way that he willingly laid down his life for your sin and my sin and the sins of the world. He wants his glory to be associated by the way that he endured the slaps and the spit and the degradation so that you and I could have a chance at eternal life. That's why he did it. This is a different kind of glory. Crowds are fine, right? Jesus has no problem with crowds, but crowds aren't the point. This is a different kind of glory that can live in all places. This is a glory that can live in Lemon Holt and Cancer Clinic when a husband reaches across the table and takes hold of his wife's hand and prays with her before she gets her first chemo infusion. This is a glory that makes itself known at three in the morning when a frustrated mom for the fourth night in a row goes into the bedroom of her daughter who cannot sleep and strokes her hair and prays with her again. This is a glory that lives at a funeral home when a friend greets a grieving friend embraces him, and says, I don't know why this had to happen, but we love you guys, 
and we're praying for you. It's a different kind of glory, and that means it leads to a different kind of spiritual leadership. A different way of measuring strength. When we measure spiritual leadership and strength and success, what do we look at? We still look at crowds. How many people in the pew? How many coins in the coffer? How's the budget doing? And I know you have to measure those things. But when Jesus reveals himself at this point, maybe he's teaching us to look at other measures as well. How many hours spent in hospital visits? How many hours walking with people through pain? How many times that you're sharing tears with people who are in deep need? By revealing himself here, Jesus is suggesting these as alternative metrics to crowds, or maybe he's suggesting that these aren't metrics at all. Maybe he's just saying, pick up your cross and follow me. What then shall we say to all these things? Watching my fellow religious leaders fail so completely makes me want to say at least this. We religious leaders will fail you. I will fail you. Bob will fail you. You will need us to call and we won't. You'll be in the hospital and sometimes we won't show up. You'll have a conversation with us and we'll be bad listeners. We'll be hypocrites. We'll get defensive. We will fail. But don't let our failure obscure Christ's faithfulness. Because your hope does not depend on those 71 guys in the Sanhedrin. Your hope does not depend on Bob or I or the latest celebrity pastor who's the rock star of the moment. Your hope depends on the man who's standing on trial in that room. Your hope depends on the man who hangs on the cross. Your hope depends on your true and great high priest, Jesus Christ, your Lord. Amen. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that in you we have a foundation and a leadership that forgives the sins of all of us, including us leaders, and that holds us and moves us and keeps us together even when we fall flat on our faces. Lord, today again, we come to the cross, we turn our eyes towards you, we name you our Lord, and we give, our, give you our lives. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to LaGrave Avenue CRC's Sermon Podcast.